Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We contain these trillions of microorganisms. Now, when we say microorganisms, we're mostly talking about bacteria. But actually living within us, we don't just have bacteria. We have beneficial viruses, fungi such as yeast, and even parasites. And these collectively are called microorganisms our gut microbiome, which essentially is, you know, these trillions of organisms that do so much to protect our body. And, you know, 10 or so years ago, we didn't really appreciate how important these guys were for things like longevity, mental health conditions, and a range of other chronic conditions as well. Hello, and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science, and health as we speak with world-leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. On today's podcast, I have a woman I've been following for years, and she is the award-winning, best-selling author, the gut health doctor, otherwise known as Dr. Megan Rossi. And she is considered one of the most influential gut health specialists internationally. Dr. Rossi is passionate about empowering others to take control of their health and happiness from the inside out. Megan is a registered dietitian and nutritionist with an award-winning PhD in gut health. Dr. Rossi is the founder of the Gut Health Clinic in London to make an evidence-based approach more accessible and get people's guts back on track. Passionate about making a meaningful difference in people's lives, Megan is also a member of the IBS Network Expert Advisory Board and Bowel and Cancer Research UK Grants Committee. Dr. Rossi also leads research at King's College London, investigating nutrition-based therapies and gut health, including pre- and probiotics, dietary fibres, the low FODMAP diet, and food additives. On top of this, Megan has changed thousands of people's lives through her books, Eat Yourself Healthy and Eat More, Live Well. I hope you enjoy today's chat with this truly extraordinary woman. I got to ask her all the questions I've been dying to know and often get confused about or receive conflicting information about. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. What is a quote that you like to return to often and why? I think I'd have to say success is really an accident. I just, whether it's success in the work field, whether it's success in overcoming a health condition, I just find, you know, things take work 
and people might, you know, appear on the surfaces, you know, they had an overnight success with, you know, improving their mental health or, you know, reaching their um, career goals. But actually underneath you see that, you know, they're doing daily meditation, you know, they're working, you know, long hours and all those sorts of things. So that's probably my, my go-to quote. Really appreciate that. Thank you for that beginning. Um, what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? You can't be perfect at everything, I would say. <laughs> um, my my little boy is now 10 months old and I've found, you know, the early months juggling motherhood and, you know, having your own business and then my research work at King's, it was a lot of different hats to spin and I had this kind of internal battle about not being able to put in necessarily the hours that I used to, you know, in my research world and, you know, being on top of all of my emails all the time, but then also being, you know, a really dedicated mum. So I think I had to let go some of that perfectionism and be like, you know what, it's okay not to give my all to something. As long as I'm doing as well as I can, I should just give myself a little pat on the back for that one. Yeah. I, I think that will resonate with a lot of people. How do you understand the soul? That's a deep question. I think we could spend the whole podcast talking about that. But I think um, having time out going for a walk, for me, really, like it brings out all different emotions, particularly in like in the forest. I just find that kind of really helps me, I guess, engage internally with who I am as a person and I guess my purpose and all of those sorts of things. So some time in nature, I would say. In terms of your daily practice, is that something that you make sure is there or what does a daily practice or what are the sort of habits that you have included in your day or your life that helps you to reconnect with that? Again, very different since having my little boy. Um, You know, I used to take my puppy for a walk uh, because we live quite close to a little forest and we used to kind of walk through there for like 30 minutes each morning. um, And that really got my head right. Now, um, since since Archie is starting to get a little bit older and he can go out more, Archie's now joined me on that little walk. Um, but certainly I haven't been able to do it as frequently as what I would like. So maybe if we go out you know, to the park for 10 minutes, that's kind of a win. Um, so I haven't necessarily been able to get as deep into kind of that daily practice as I used to and I would like. Uh, but, you know, there are the sacrifices that you, you know, you're going to make when you become a parent. And that's one of the things I had to let go in terms of perfectionism. I can't have this ideal morning routine um, like I used to, you know, particularly while babies are young. I'm like, really, like, I'm finding this very healing just listening to your advice in the first five <laughs> minutes. I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I needed to hear today. So let's dive into gut health in particular. So what are gut microbes and why are they important? Yeah, so this is, you know, a remarkable landmark scientific discovery that we contain these trillions of microorganisms. Now, when we say microorganisms, we're mostly talking about bacteria, so different types of bacteria. But actually living within us, we don't just have bacteria. We have beneficial viruses, fungi such as yeast, and even parasites. And these collectively are called microorganisms. And one step further, the scientific name is our gut microbiome, which essentially is, you know, these trillions of organisms that synergistically work together that do so much to protect our body. And, you know, 10 or so years ago, we didn't really appreciate how important these guys were for things like longevity, you know, mental health conditions and a range of other chronic conditions as well. What is the relationship between mental health and these microbes? There is some controversy here, right, isn't there? 
I would say historically, yes. So certainly yeah. when I was, uh, you know, studying dietetics 15 plus years ago, we were told diet may have some sort of role on our mental health, but hey, let's not over overstate it. And now actually we're starting to go, actually, no, diet can have a really measurable and remarkable impact on our mental health. And one of the key mechanisms for that is because of our gut bacteria in terms of our diet is one of the biggest predictors of the types of those microorganisms living inside of us. And if we think about this gut-brain connection, so this two-way connection that occurs between the gut and the brain, you know, I, I love explaining this to people because I appreciate that, you know, thinking that our bacteria, you know, very distant part of our body can talk to our brain. I get that sounds a little bit like hippy dippy and woohoo-y, but there is now really good scientific evidence that highlights there is this two-way communication. And one of the main um, or three of the main mechanisms of how these bacteria are thought to talk to the brain comes down to the first one being kind of like this um, mobile phone type of communication where the bacteria, you know, alert our brain that something's going on via this nervous system. So some people may have heard of the vagus nerve. So it zips up to our brain and says, look, you're hungry or something's going on. So that's the first way, um, the mobile phone communication. The second one is via the immune system. 70% of our immune system lives in our gut. So those microbes and the, and the immune system live hand in hand. So if the microbes sense something's going on, they can activate the immune system to produce inflammatory chemicals, which then communicate to our brain. So that's the second way, kind of like an alarm system of how they communicate. And the third one is good old postal service. So the microbes actually, when they eat our food, particularly dietary fiber from all our plants, they produce these chemicals, which then can get into the blood and some of which can pass that blood brain barrier. So for those who are like, oh, is this really a thing? Well, actually, we've got three mechanisms of how the science is showing that these bacteria uh, can actually influence our mental health. And you wrote a recent article called Psychobiotics. And by the way, your website is brilliant. If anybody wants lots and lots of free resources, please do head to Megan's website, which we'll put in the show notes, because I literally found a rabbit hole of content that I was totally <laughs> fascinated by. But you write psychobiotics could be the new antidepressants. Would you mind talking us through this discovery and what your main thoughts are about this? Yeah. So psychobiotics is just, you know, a fancy word for specific probiotics. So probiotics are the live microbes. Often you find them in capsules or liquids. So the, the science has highlighted that specific types of probiotics may have a benefit on mental health. And they've called these specific types psychobiotics. In terms of the whole body of evidence, they've what I was talking about in the blog is they've done this review paper where they pulled together all the individual clinical trials which looked at probiotics on mental health. And what they found overall, there actually did seem to be a benefit of specific probiotics for mental health. However, it's still very early days in terms of each different study typically use a different type of probiotic. So we don't exactly know, you know, which type of probiotic is likely to be best for mental health. And actually they also show that the um, studies which had the most greatest benefit was when the psychobiotic was given to people with the greatest level of mental health severity. So it looked like more in like the hospital setting where people had, you know, severe um, depression that seemed to have the greatest impact. But what all this research is highlighting is that this is definitely going to be, you know, a future area of investigation. And many researchers are currently investigating how augmenting, so changing the bacteria can 
impact people's mental health conditions. So for people like, oh, which probiotic should I take? At the moment, I wouldn't recommend going down the probiotic route if you want to you know, maximize your mental health because the research is probably a couple of years off that and each different probiotic does different things. So there's really good um, evidence for specific probiotics for if you have to go on antibiotics, um, for irritable bowel syndrome, for constipation, for the common cold. And actually I talk about these probiotic prescriptions. So the exact types of bacteria, the duration, the dosing, and all of those elements that you really need to think about when you're taking a probiotic in my first book, um, Eat Yourself Healthy. So I go through you know, which ones are probably ideal to take versus taking any off the shelf. It's not going to give you the health benefits that you want because it's kind of like you know vitamins and minerals if you have iron deficiency and you go and take a vitamin d supplement your iron deficiency is not going to improve are you because they're, they're different nutrients and the same goes with probiotics and bacteria um so it's a little bit of a tangent but that's just an important one i think on probiotics because you, you see all these marketing you know campaigns throwing probiotics at you and actually they're just not helpful. You need to be very therapeutic with matching the bacteria that has been shown in a human study to have a specific benefit versus taking any. But then, so what should people do in terms of their mental health? Well, actually, there's a really great study. Um, again, I've written a blog on this called the SMILES trial. And what they did is they gave people a gut boosting diet. Um, and the other half of the participants um, had a befriending type of counseling just to make sure any benefit in the diet group wasn't because of you know seeing the researcher but actually because of the food and after 12 weeks on the diet intervention um or the the counseling intervention they compared their mental health scores because these people had moderate severe depression uh, and they found in the diet group 32 percent of them had a significant improvement in their depression scores which would have classified them as no longer clinically depressed in the um, control group so the counseling group that was like eight percent that's phenomenal yeah the power of diet is massive. Um, so that's kind of where I recommend people start if they really want to tap into this gut brain axis is really, you know, following this gut boosting diet. I do always want to make a disclosure about that study though, because they had moderate severe depression. All of the participants stayed on their antidepressant medications. So if anyone's listening to this and thinking who's on an antidepressant medication thinking, oh my God, I'm just going to go cold turkey, cut that out and just nourish my diet through this gut boosting diet. I would say definitely don't do that. Um, but certainly it should give you faith that actually there's good scientific evidence that as an additional therapy, you know, diet can have a powerful role. And certainly what I've seen at the gut health clinic with, you know, some of my patients is that over time with the support of their psychiatrist, we've been able to get people off the antidepressant um, medications by nourishing their gut bacteria. This is so exciting. And also just, as you said, like reassuring and promising. Yeah. And I, I want people to feel really empowered by this mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we know that absolutely mental health issues, depression is, is very heterogeneous. There's a number of different causes and complexities of it. So absolutely, it might not work for everyone, but we now have this, you know, really strong scientific evidence to show that some of our mental health we're actually in control of via how we treat this inner community of bacteria. Um, so it's about focusing on nourishing them with, you know, this gut boosting diet. And essentially that's what um, the new book, Eat More, Live Well, is all about nourishing the bacteria to really reap all those health benefits that the scientific studies are coming out about. Your latest book is full of so much information about the foods that are going to help get you there. What surprised you most about your research when writing this book? Like maybe some of the thoughts that maybe historically 
you thought were fine, but actually after writing it, you thought, mm, I actually would prefer to encourage people to eat more of this, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the the studies have, you know, come out over the past, you know, five, ten years. Um, so it's kind of built on, I guess, what I was really seeing, you know, in my clinical practice as well. So I wouldn't say there's anything that necessarily surprised me greatly because I've, you know, been following the research quite closely. So nothing was like, oh my God. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people, um, what might surprise them is that the the scientific evidence is saying that. Being vegan, so eating only plant, 100% plant-based, actually doesn't mean that you've got better gut health than someone who's an omnivore. So also um, eats lots of plants, but also eats animal products. Um, and that's what I talk about, this you know plant-based eating spectrum. And I think when people hear the word plant-based, they think of veganism. But actually, I guess the clue is in the name. You're, the base of your diet is plants. And whatever you add on top of that is completely up to you. So it's not plants only, it's plant-based. And that continuum of where you've got the veganism at one end, at the other end, you've got the flexitarianism. So you, you know, pretty much everything, but most, most of your diet still is plants. And that, yeah, like I said, the scientific studies are showing wherever you sit on that is completely fine for your gut health and overall health. However, they do, you know, the scientific studies are highlighting that if you're choosing to go plants only, which I completely understand for environmental, cultural, animal cruelty reasons, etc., but actually you need to be quite savvy with your nutrition um, because we know that things like, you know, choline, uh, B12, zinc, iron, many omega-3s is another really important one. It's actually quite difficult to get that, all those nutrients um, from plants only you can uh, not all of them but most of them you can but you have to be you know really savvy uh, with what you're you're choosing to eat so that's why actually I don't necessarily recommend everyone goes plants only it's more a plant-based so including some of these um, animal foods like oily fish is amazing for omega-3s for things like your mental health in particular and then things like you know your b12 your fermented dairy also really helpful for nutrients I think sometimes we get lost in quite a binary view of equating size to health. And so assuming that a size would suggest someone's unhealthy, but actually there are many different signs to suggest that actually maybe your diet might not be serving you in the way it could. What are some of the signs that people should be looking out for and just looking how they could tweak their diet? Yeah, look, it is a tricky one because we know that what we eat essentially fuels every element of our body. So I would say it's more about just reviewing your diet and thinking, actually, how many different types of plants are you getting in your diet each and every week? And the, the science has shown that people who are eating at least 30 different types of plants actually seem to have better gut health than those who are kind of eating the same 10 on repeat. So in a way, it's about reviewing what, what you're having. And when I talk about plants, it's not just your fruit and veg. Actually, there is these six plant-based food groups. I call them the super six. Um, so you've got your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, your beans and your pulses, and your herbs and your spices. Now, each category actually provides your body and your gut bacteria with different nutrients. And I go into more of them uh, in the book. But that's kind of an important point in that, you know, some diets which recommend cutting out whole food, whole plant food groups actually can have a negative impact on our gut bacteria. And we're missing out on some key nutrients because, like I said, each of the different types provides our body uh, with an array of nutrients we might not get as much of from another food group. Am I right in thinking you're not the biggest fan of keto? 
I'm not the biggest fan of keto, but, you know, not personally. I mean, it's more because I see the scientific evidence highlighting it can be really negative for people's gut health. Um, but also I see people in clinic who, who come to see me after trying things like the keto diet and maybe they've had some success and weight loss, but they come to see me about six months after that because they've not only regained that weight they may have lost, but they've regained an extra, you know, five to 10 kilograms. And actually what the, the science is suggesting, the reason for that weight regain is potentially because these restrictive diets where you cut out things like whole grains and legumes actually can do damage to our gut metabolism link. So we know that our gut bacteria are actually really important in regulating our our metabolism through things like our glucose levels, appetite hormones, et cetera. So if you're going on these diets, which cut out some of our gut bacteria's favorite uh, categories of nutrients and specific types of dietary fibers, then that can damage that relationship. So then when you start to reinclude and have a more holistic diet, actually some of the damage has already been done. Hence why you see that weight kind of bounce back. I want people to, I guess, find what works for them. And you know, at the end of the day, if They've got the information, you know, they're very empowered with the science and they still choose, if people still choose to go keto, go for it. Like I'm all about you doing you. I just want people to have the evidence and the information to make an informed decision. What are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? Yeah, so this is a, a good one. In terms of overall, the scientific, you know, research doesn't suggest it's good or bad it's an individualized thing. So for some people, actually, intermittent fasting can be a helpful way for them to kind of re-engage with their eating and their appetites. However, for other people, particularly me, if I got told that I couldn't eat at a specific time, I would be incredibly upset and angry. Again, that's why I see with, with clients all the time. For some people, it can, it can help with kind of, you know, the weight management side of things. But for other people, it really doesn't work. There isn't any scientific uh, study overall that's suggesting that intermittent fasting works for everyone or is really bad for everyone. I would say if you are thinking about intermittent fasting, you still need to make sure that you're getting in 30 plant um, varieties per week and you're getting enough dietary fiber in because there has been some animal studies which highlights that if during the, the fasting period, if you're not eating the fiber, um, that actually the bacteria in the gut seems to start to eat away at the mucus lining of the gut um, because they're hungry and they're being starved and that can then increase your risk of, of um, gut inflammation. Now, that was in animal studies, but the same mechanism is likely possible in humans. So it just highlights the importance that if you are, you know, having fasting periods and it works for you, good, but you do need to think about getting in your 30 grams of fiber still. And I know that a lot of people who've got a sensitive gut find it quite difficult to get in enough fiber if they're eating window because the intermittent fasting is really restricted down. So just being conscious of that, if you have a sensitive gut, that maybe intermittent fasting might not be for you. And what sort of fiber do you encourage? Because I guess there's so many different types of fiber that you could eat. Which ones do you prioritize? Yeah. So it's a case of if you're getting your 30 plant points from each of those six plant-based food groups, they all provide different fibers. So when we talk, you know, the government says we all need to get 30 grams of fiber in. It's not just a one type of nutrient. Actually, there's like close to hundred different types of fiber. So the ideal is getting it from all six plant-based food groups versus saying, oh, I'm just going to get fiber from veg, or I'm just going to get fiber from my fruit or my whole grains. Cause they all have 
slightly different chemical functions. Now, if someone is struggling with a specific gut issue, so for example, with constipation, then that's when I would recommend a specific type of fiber supplement. Um, there is really good evidence for something called psyllium husk. And I talk more about the, I guess, the, the prescription for that, the, in terms of how much you should have duration, et cetera, um, in the first book, Eat Yourself Healthy. But for everyone else, I wouldn't recommend taking a fiber supplement. Getting it from whole foods is really the optimal because you get that mixed fiber combination. Talking about constipation, favorite subject. Yeah. Um, eggs. I find these quite controversial. What are your thoughts? Again, if I'm just being completely um, focused on the science, the science says that actually, you know, eggs can be a really beneficial source of choline, uh, particularly in people who are pregnant. We know that um, choline is really important for bub's brain development. And actually our needs of choline is slightly re- higher when we are pregnant. Um, I personally love poached eggs. Uh, so from a flavor perspective, brilliant. So, you know, there was historically some evidence suggesting that because they contain cholesterol, if you have high cholesterol, then eggs aren't great. But actually the science is showing that more of animal fat, so, you know, the skin on chicken, the Mm. fat in, you know, mints and stuff like that has a greater impact on increasing your blood cholesterol levels than eating cholesterol in food like eggs. And is there any science to suggest that just having an egg white omelette is better than having a normal omelette? No, I would say that if you are having just the egg white omelette, you're probably missing out on some of that beneficial choline um, that's more in the yolk component and and the other sort of like vitamin D and the other kind of uh, fatty acids that you find in the yolk component. So I wouldn't say that it's any healthy. That, again, is, I guess, historic thinking around this cholesterol lowering uh, because we know the yolk contains the cholesterol so historically they've said oh just eat the egg white because that doesn't have the cholesterol in it but actually we, we appreciate now that having the yolk is not going to significantly elevate cholesterol unlike you know having the the skin on chicken might that's really interesting thank you so much for clarifying that another aspect of the brain gut relationship is obviously then how it affects our hormones which i feel has been quite under discussed element of how we eat what would you like or wish more people knew about the relationship between diet and hormones you know something I guess when I was writing the book I learned more about um is this gut hormone link in fact our gut bacteria actually metabolize and recycle estrogen in our body So I guess I didn't really appreciate how important our gut bacteria were in things like our estrogen levels and other types of hormones throughout the body. And if you think of the diet link, we know diet obviously dictates the types of bacteria and therefore, you know, how they really have that impact on estrogen. So, you know, if people are going through things like the menopause or have polycystic ovary syndrome, then it's even more important for you to start thinking about your gut bacteria and, you know, trying to diversify the number of different types of plants in your diet. And in fact, there was one study um, which looked at people who were going through the menopause and found that those who increase the plants that they're having in their diet actually reduce their hot flushes by nearly 20%. And yeah, so we think, you know, one of the key mechanisms is the plants are feeding the bacteria, the bacteria then helping regulate the estrogen, et cetera. So yeah, trying to um, nourish those bacteria wherever you can, because if you nourish them, they'll have your back. They want you to be healthy if you look after them. I love that. I always love how you present this as kind of very much, we all need to be working on the same team. It's like make your gut bacteria a team player. 
I mean, because it's so true. Um, And in the more of the scientific studies that are coming out, the more we appreciate that actually humans couldn't survive without these bacteria. So many of the functions, which we historically thought were down to, you know, our human cells kind of doing, actually we're appreciating it's the bacteria. And that's why we're seeing people who who aren't nourishing and looking after the gut bacteria are at such high, higher increased risks of things like heart disease, mental health issues, you know, type two diabetes, different types of cancers. Like it's research is right before our eyes. You know, it's like having a really amazing team of employees. Um, you know, if you're a good employer, then they'll be really good employees. And it is that mutual benefit. So how do you advise people to, bearing in mind that food has such an impact on our hormones, which then has such an impact on our mental health and how we're feeling, how do you advise people to eat during their menstrual cycle, for example? Yeah, I mean, there is these concepts like the seed cycling that suggests that, you know, at different stages through your menstrual cycle, you should be eating certain types of seeds because they've got different types of um, phytoestrogens and things like that in them. But actually, there is no scientific evidence to support that. And in terms of yeah, eating specific foods around your periods, Actually, it's more, I guess, whether the science is that it's more around symptom control. So, we, you know, there is this concept of um, period poops. So when you're moving into your periods, you get kind of loose stools. For some people, it's like doesn't bother them all. Some people actually it's quite debilitating in terms of they get quite a lot of diarrhea and they might get extra stomach cramps. So, you know, if that is the case and you are getting uh, quite bad, um, you know, gut symptoms, then it's about things like having small, more frequent meals, you know, reducing gut stimulants. So cutting back on the caffeine, spicy food having more of the the types of soluble fiber like the psyllium husk I spoke about. But, yeah, I know hopefully maybe in the future there'll be more research around actually eating specific foods during specific times. But I don't know if the the effects of of food are that acute um, to have those sorts of effects, you know, within one or two days you have to eat this. And I think another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, food should be celebrated and should be enjoyed. And I think sometimes we can over-medicalize food and what I've seen in clinic is that can really instill negative relationships with certain foods and you know at the end of the day food should be celebrated and if you have a negative association with the food there's this thing called the nocebo effect so it's the opposite so the placebo effect is when if you take a supplement and you think the supplement's going to do you good you actually feel better the nocebo effect is the opposite so if you eat something that you think is bad for you you can physically manifest symptoms and we see this in all the time in our clinical trials at kings where we put people through these placebo diets so they don't know what they're having and if they believe that they're you know for example gluten they're having gluten um, and they have the associations that gluten is bad for them, then they physically get bloated. You can see it. They get, um, you know, diarrhea and things like that, even though they've got when they don't have the gluten arm. So they, just because their belief that they're having gluten when actually they're having like the the uh, fake gluten arm. So um, the nocebo effect is very real. And again, reinforces this gut brain axis going on. And, you know, it's not that, you know, the people in these studies are crazy or anything. It's we all do it. So if we, um, that food poisoning if we have like a bad Chinese or something often we can never go and have that same meal again because we've got that negative association like oh my god I vomited last time I ate that even though you know that you know this next batch isn't you know contaminated or whatever it's just our body's kind of protective instinct 
That has blown my mind. It really, again, shines the light on how, I guess, influential media can be and making sure you're following the right experts. And it just shows if you're listening to someone that makes you believe that you could be allergic to everything, you could internalize that without even realizing. I mean, it happened to me before where, you know, people I follow on social media when, you know, they're demonizing a certain food. And then I've had to catch myself out and being like, this food is completely fine for me. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to harm me. And, you know, this is my area of expertise and everything. And it just shows the psychological impact of this constant reinforcement of food and it having a specific kind of negative or positive effect on our body. As much as I hate to admit it, I actually think I have done that with gluten. You know, you've read so so many years now. It's like, oh, you don't have gluten or whatever. And I do think I probably created my own sensitivity towards it, as embarrassing as that that to me. I mean, not at all, because it happens to the most, you know, highly intelligent people. Like, it's nothing to be embarrassed about at all, but it's now something to be aware of. So I think, you know, that's one of the big I guess messages is for people to kind of tap into that awareness and be like oh actually maybe I should like retest myself in a you know blinded manner and that's something you know I talk people through um for example with with gluten so I get them to um get you know someone from home a family member if they think they've got a gluten intolerance get a family member on board where one day give them gluten-free bread blend it up obviously whether it's in a smoothie or you know in a surface they can't actually they don't actually know that by the taste and then a week later on the exact same day have the other type of bread um so if that was gluten-free then have the wheat the gluten containing bread and and then assess their symptoms so you do it in a very objective manner and then you know for sure actually that nocebo effect because your head is brought out of the game whether your body physically does have a reaction to it or whether it's that nocebo effect totally fascinating talking about something that is quite controversial and there's so many polarizing views about this caffeine is this something that we should be avoiding or is this something that it's okay so caffeine it's very individualized again so i would say if you are predisposed to anxiety or gut symptoms and particularly things like bloating or looser poops then actually caffeine might not work for you um, because we certainly know that caffeine can increase your cortisol your stress hormone um, and if you are anxious as a baseline then that can be elevated higher however for other people you know the scientific observational studies where they look at people who have caffeine and those who don't say that you know having some caffeine is could actually be beneficial particularly in the form of things like coffee and tea which are high in these things called polyphenols which feed our gut bacteria so i would say for for people without anxiety or gut issues you know having one to two coffees you know filtered coffees which are really high in these polyphenols is probably, you know, a beneficial thing. However, if you're in the other group, I would say just go decaf and you can still get some of those polyphenols that way. Again, though, I did a post on this where it comes down to your genetics and how you metabolize caffeine. So some people, you you probably noticed yourself around friends, some people can have uh, espresso at like 10 p.m. and then go to bed at 10.30, whereas other people will be like bouncing off the walls. Maybe it's, you know, espresso martini at that time of night. Mm-hmm. And that comes down to the gen- different genetics uh, and whether you've got specific enzymes which more rapidly um, metabolize that caffeine and therefore it's not circulating in your body as long. And lastly, before I go, because you have just, oh, it's been packed full of so many nuggets, sleep. You did mention sleep and caffeine. What are your thoughts on sleep and diet? How can we cultivate a diet? 
that supports our sleep. Yeah, so we know that the two go hand in hand and, you know, I'm going to bring in the gut into it um, because, you know, again, the scientific studies have shown that is, you know, works both directions where sleep can have an impact on our gut microbes in terms of actually after just two days of sleep deprivation, that seems to start to negatively change our gut bacteria. But similarly, some of the studies have shown that our gut bacteria can also impact our sleep quality. And again, whenever we talk about a gut microbiome, that's kind of my into the diet because we know like a diet is one of the number one predictors of our gut microbes or who's living within us by how we feed them. So I think absolutely, you know, nourishing our, our bacteria through our diet is really important um, for your sleep quality. But then in turn, if you are struggling with sleep, we know that can have a negative impact on your food choices. There's a nice review paper which showed that when you are sleep deprived, you seem to um, go for you know, the more ultra processed foods and the less high fiber foods. So you kind of are getting that instant kind of reward sorts of foods um, and therefore not nourishing your gut bacteria. So you need to be aware of that. And um, some of my colleagues at King's actually did a really nice uh, study where they took people and half of them, they gave them this sleep hygiene protocol, which they developed. And the other half, they just got told to sleep more. And those who followed the sleep hygiene protocol for nine weeks actually had a significant improvement in their sleep quality and their sleep duration compared to those who um, just got told to sleep more. Um, So those who do have my first book, Eat Some Healthy, um, my colleagues let me publish that hygiene protocol. Um, So I would definitely recommend following it. Um, And I actually also have a sleep health assessment. So you can do the assessment before you do the um, sleep hygiene protocol. And then after the nine weeks, do the assessment again to see how it's improved your sleep in, again, an objective way, because that's what we like to do as researchers. But some of the tips are things like, before you go to bed about two hours before like doing this brain dump, have like a worry diary or like an action list. And it kind of lets everything go. As soon as you wake up in the morning, expose your face to light to help regulate your sleep hormones, like melatonin and, you know, watching the light, all of those sorts of things, which I think a lot of people are starting to be more aware of, but it's best to do, I guess, all of them at once. Often we pick like, okay, I'm not going to do social media or I'm going to watch the blue light. And we don't actually kind of use all of the tools um, in a kind of systematic way. So it's worth just trying it if you really are struggling with sleep because they've heard so many amazing reports of how it's transformed people's sleep quality. Amazing. Well, this has been so informative, so interesting. I will put a link to both of your books in the show notes and it couldn't encourage people more to check them out because as I said, the level of research that you put into your work is just next level. So thank you for that. And you can also get them from the library. So if, you know, it's not about pushing for sales or anything like that, I just want people to get the evidence um, and apply it so they can, you know, read those benefits. So yeah, go to the library if, you know, you don't have the budget. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, um, and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast at some point in the future because this has been brilliant. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 